Howdy, friends. This is Brad from the Salty Dogs, and anytime I get a hankering to listen to two guys overanalyze music, the first place I turn to is the Jukebox Graduate with Dave and Eugene. Thank you, Brad. Brad Williams of the Salty Dogs giving us our intro this week on the Jukebox Graduate. I'm Dave Rayburn. And I'm Eugene Edwards. And Eugene, you sound like you're coming through a telephone. Why is that? Where where are you? (laughs) I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha. In a hotel room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A hotel in Omaha. A a, a hotel in Omaha. uh, And I just arrived here today from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, So clearly I'm on the road. Yes, I'm on the road, and uh, and and my schedule it doesn't really allow for us to do our, our traditional uh, taping of our of this month's episode. So you've been kind enough to kind of help out with a lot of the logistics here. Um, uh, I'm yeah, I'm on the road. We we just finished a couple of shows in Florida this weekend, and then we are doing five shows this week. Um, in uh, Omaha and a couple spots in Iowa and Indiana, uh, Indiana and Missouri. Um, it's Brandy Clark. It's Robert Earl King. Mm. It's us. And then it's Willie Nelson. Wow. That's the show. Wow. It's a lot of great music (laughs) and we're really, really, really happy to, to, to be with Willie again and with, well, we've done shows with, with, with everybody, uh, in, in various guises. Um, never a quadruple bill like this. So, um, so happy I would be catching up with, with old friends out here and obviously hearing, uh, really masterful musicians and singers and, and songwriters. So excited to see all those folks. And, and so, and thank you, Dave. I, I do have to thank you for accommodating me on this. No Sorry, problem. I'm, it, I'm uh, coming to you live from Riverside, California in my bedroom. <laughs> it's nice and toasty in here. Good for you. Um, so, so what what have you? So what's what's going on? Well, uh, I'm not here. I'm, I'm I'm like I'm like a spaceman just out in space here. What, what's happening back on Terra Firma? Back here, we got some exciting news. Um, friend of the show, Mr. Tom Zimney, uh, filmmaker, who a lot of people know as being the the guy behind all the recent Springsteen documentaries of the last what twelve to fifteen years. Uh, so the Born to Run doc, uh, Wings for Wheels. Uh, the Darkness in the Edge of Town documentary, mm-hmm. um, the River Ties a Bind documentary. Of course, he's edited uh, and put together the uh, several of the concert videos that have come out. Uh, prior to that, he, he was an editor for a few seasons of The Wire. And uh, so he's actually had his hand in, in film work for, for quite a while now, but he is at the helm of the latest HBO documentary uh, on Elvis Presley called The Searcher. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be debuting uh, April 14th on HBO, and it'll also be on demand uh, for some time after that. But this is a pretty uh, massive piece. Uh, I think it's over three hours long. It's going to be presented in two parts. Wow. And it's called The Searcher, correct? The Searcher, yeah. See, now that's very interesting because because as we know, Elvis did not write his own tunes. Right. So for Elvis to express himself uh via music was he had to rely on the words composed by others yep so every time he walked into a studio whether you know usually when the demos were sent to him 
he had to have been on a search for the song before he could even, you know, put it across to us, um, which which puts him in a in a in a different spot than than you know all the the Beatles and and all, all the people who compose their own music. Right. So Elvis, and of course Elvis sits as, the, as that that excellent fulcrum at all times. He comes to our attention in the middle of the century. He comes to us from the very center of the ge- geographical United States. Right. He comes to us from the center of race relations. He's in the center mm-hmm. of everything. Yep. He's this interesting kind of like thing in which everything will orbit. Um, so to call it the searcher, and when I first saw the title, I thought it would just be about his his spiritual side. Obviously, that's part um, of it his too. Tie- to the church is strong, and, and as as we know, anytime he sat around casually with a guitar or a piano, mm-hmm. hanging out with friends or other musicians, he ninety five percent of the time would just sing and play gospel music right. all night long. Um, uh, all night long. Uh, in fact, I think that's the uh, yeah, that's the one Grammy he won. Right, was for his gospel music. Um, and then of course, it, it, and it wasn't just his Christianity that was at play, he, he went on to kind of more, I think he kept, he did keep searching for something else there in terms of spirituality. Um, we could, some mocked it as kind of getting into some spoon bending, um, uh, beliefs maybe, but, um, but it's interesting that, that there's, I'm glad that Tom and the people making this movie found a new way to, to readdress Elvis. Um, because like many, many, big jewels if you just turn it a little bit the light will show us a completely different yeah yeah view and elvis kind of acts that way and and to investigate elvis in the way he was about his music is probably to talk a lot about us as rock and roll fans or us as an american society and how we related to music mm-hmm. um you know uh, so and uh, obviously you have participation and help from very central figures in this thing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, have you had a chance to look at the soundtrack listing? No. Okay, there's a, a deluxe version that has three discs. The third disc uh, features a lot of music that influenced Elvis. And that's pretty oh, interesting. So you get that, like... That would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Cause, so you kind of hear where he picks, he, where he's trying to pick up on vocal stylings of, uh, I believe it's Johnny Ray... Oh, wow. You're very dramatic, very dramatic singer. Yeah. And you, mm-hmm. you totally get that. You know what song he's trying to you know, to mimic there. Um, sure. And then the Arthur Crudup, you know, That's All Right, Mama. Um, of course. I think, is it the Blackwood Brothers? That sounds right. Yeah. Uh, I would think the Blackwood Brothers featured huge into Elvis's bi- uh, early biography. Yep, yep. They've got a couple songs on there. And in fact, there's a really interesting track on there. Um, Gladys Presley, Elvis's mother. Uh, mm-hmm. she sings a song on there and it's, it's just some casual really? recording. Yeah. And I've never, I've heard her in interviews before, but I didn't know she sang and it's great to hear the previous generation. Well, the mother of one of the greatest <laughs> singers, you know, of our time, um, to, to hear her voice, to hear her singing, because that's likely something that he was hearing around the house growing up, you know, and that could have very well, I'm sure that was an inspiration for him, you know? Well, you can't you can't divorce Elvis from his mom. No, no. In any way, so that that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
but also to, that's also it would be interesting to hear that that play the 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 list of songs that influenced Elvis. Also, remember just to hear what what they would sound like sonically. What did records sound like to Elvis? Uh, production values were very different, and um, radio sounded very very different. Radio yeah. was AM, not yeah. FM. Right. So um, so that would also be very interesting. So you understand that Elvis heard records this way. And they didn't. They sonically were very, very different from the records that that Elvis eventually made. I think about that in terms of the Beatles too. Think, well, they listened to obviously they listened to the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and Little yeah. Richard and Ray Charles. Uh, but at the end of their experience, what records sounded like because of the Beatles mostly, um, records just sounded very, very different. Um, and Elvis sits that you know Elvis is the same way. Um, so yeah, listen to an Arthur Crudup recording of That's All Right, Mama, which, mm-hmm. of course, Elvis was going to be familiar with. Uh, listen to the Mills Brothers. Listen to the, any of the Goswell, the, the Blackwood Brothers. Um, listen to... Um, Ink Spots. Ink Spots, great example. And um, to the, to us, they would sound ex- very archaic. Yeah. Um, but it's important to know that that's, that's what records sounded like to Elvis Presley. That's a really interesting it, point. It, in the way that the way that he wanted to somehow look like Tony Curtis, you know, which yeah. <laughs> makes no sense to us because we all want to look like Elvis on right. some level. <laughs> Why would he want to look some other way? It's like, because that's what a proper movie star looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, it's, it's always uh, interesting or, you know, think of the same thing when you listen to the four freshmen, it's just very obvious where Brian Wilson's harmonies mm-hmm. come from. I mean, it's just, it's just so clear. But somehow the four freshmen do sound a little like you can almost hear their matching sweaters. It does. <laughs> it does. It's, it's, it does. It sounds very black and white as where yeah. the Beach Boys sound very much in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to understand that like I, I use the word fulcrum. Elvis acts as this fulcrum. He helps catapult the past into the future. Um, and as Brian Wilson did and as the Beatles did and we can go on. Uh, but. Uh, it's kind of nice to go back and listen to those those founding fathers, you know. So the the soundtrack, a three disc set, highly recommended. Uh, covers the you know the faith tracks as well. So it's it's yeah. a pretty you know everything from the early Sun stuff. And you know I made the the Ink Spots reference because you know it reminded me hearing his first Sun recording of My Happiness. You know, he, he does that, you know, he drops his voice a little low, you know, does the spoken word part that was in every Ink Spot song. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I um, thought that was really cool. Well, that's another interesting case, though, where that was not an uncommon thing in pop records at the time. And as we know, so, you know, the anecdote is that Elvis always had a hard time, certainly when you had to perform um, Are You Lonesome Tonight live. I don't yeah. think he ever <laughs> successfully got to the talking part without laughing. Right. Um, cause to him by then it seemed like, Oh, guess this really does seem a little silly to do this, but in a lot of records, that was a very important yeah. part of a record. You Definitely. Know? But yeah. So, uh, later on in the show, uh, I've got a, uh, one-on-one Q and a with Tom Zimney, the director of the searcher. So I want you guys to stick around for that. Um, as far as what else is going on, Hey, that reminds me, there was a tour announcement that came out about a week or so back and it involves you, my friend. What can you tell us about it? 
I can tell you that we uh, we have there's several dates announced for the what we're calling the LSD tour. Uh-huh. We're worth the trip. <laughs> um, and so it is nice. it is uh, Dwight Yoakam, Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And uh, I believe this uh, all, you know, I don't even want to start quoting dates because I'll, I'll get them wrong, but they're easily searchable. Yeah, yeah. Just um, search LSD on Google and and everything will be just fine. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I don't know what could go wrong. So I believe June 12th in, in, uh, in Boston is the first date and, and it runs through the whole summer. Uh, so everybody, oh, cool. please keep an eye out for that. Um, looking forward to it. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, as not just as a part of it, but as a fan of all the artists involved, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I almost feel like more will be undone by saying too much. Uh, come on out, check out the show. Uh, understand that this is a, a chance to see three very, in my opinion, very unique songwriters and, and voices um, that came out of, you know, we can talk more about it later. There, and there was something referred to as the class of 1986 involving country music. Yeah. Um, you know, country music was coming out of the urban cowboy craze was, was dwindling. Um, the, the massive thing that like the Garth Brooks, the early nineties thing of a country beginning that explosion had not yet happened. And um, labels that were, country music labels or, or country music divisions of labels were willing to really roll the dice on unique young talent. And that class of 86, it's Dwight and it's Steve Earle. It's, it's Katie Lang, yep. uh, Rosie Flores, Roseanne cash had already had some albums out, but she actually gets lumped in with that movement as well. I love it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, just a, you know, uh, 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 you have to realize that these are artists that may not have had a, a shot in any other era, but fortunately they were given a shot at that time. And, um, it brought back a lot of, it brought, uh, you know, via Dwight, uh, we got, you know, honky tonk music was reintroduced mm-hmm. into the, the conversation. Um, Steve Earle seemed to have come out of that towns Van Zant, yeah. very renegade, but very yeah. literate, you know, uh, very, very, um, uh, very thoughtful, very literate, but very rebellious voice. Uh, Lucinda has a pedigree of the gothic Southern writers. Um, and this LSD tour hopefully will, will serve as a reminder of, of what it was like to have truly maverick artists, but maverick artists with a, a deep reverence for what came before them. Um, and you get to see uh, them all still just, playing and singing their butts off yeah, um yeah. uh right now you know what a slice of music that was it's just a really rich time and yeah those artists are still here and they're still creating fantastic music all of them you know oh yeah um to this oh, day yeah. they all three of them they still have a fire in their belly yeah uh and, and you don't need me uh to to, nope. to attest to that you just you know they speak for themselves as always those three artists um also our good friends, uh, King Leg, a very exciting new new artist uh, that that Dwight produced, will also be in on these shows. Okay, so you're it's again it's a it's a full night of music wow. and and uh, King Leg certainly a, a a band an artist that certainly has its 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 boots, you know, 
dug in in the past and in the future and and has very um, disparate influences. And I'm, I'm always curious. I try not to say too much about King Light because I don't want to tilt anyone's opinion. I like to uh, have them hear them or, or see them live. And then I like to get their, their take afterwards mm-hmm. because it's almost like a, a gumbo. And it's interesting to hear what, what, pe- <laughs> what people are tasting, you know, um, yeah. and I think I know. I know. So anyway, that, so that's the LSD tour. And of course, over the summer, as we do more shows, uh, I'll, I'll give more reports uh, to the, the fun that we'll have out there on that. Do you know what size venues you guys are playing? Um, you know, like the Beacon Theater in New York. Um, I see a lot of amphitheaters. Some places are are, are rather large. Okay, uh, from yeah, what I was going to say probably. But, but uh, it'll be uh, whatever it is. It'll, it'll be appropriate, and we'll and we'll try and blow the roof off of every place. That's fantastic. Even the ones that don't have roofs. Well, we'll put one on. We'll put one on just to blow day, it off, just so that we can blow it off. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> hey, pretty baby, are you ready for me? Yeah, you good rockin' daddy down from Tennessee. I'm just that off from back from San Antonio with a radio blastin' and the bird dog gone. There's a speed trap in my head, sound my town. No local yokel gonna see me today. Yes. Uh, I uh, actually did some homework that you assigned to me. Oh, and that's I right. Saw that thanks to the magic of I think it was Virgin America Airlines had the Blaze Foley episode uh, of uh, is it Tales from the Road? Tales or? from the tour bus. Tales from the tour bus. They had the Blaze Foley episode, so I've seen it. Oh, and you, you're yes. the one with with more to say about it than me. So I just I just want to point out I saw it. Well, we we talked about it briefly uh, yeah. on the last episode, and it was my uh, I was recounting my my New Year's uh, revelation of you know just <laughs> staying at home, throwing on the TV, and catching up on this series that a friend of mine recommended to me. And as I'm plowing through the George Jones episode and the uh, Johnny Paycheck episode, and all these familiar names, the very last episode is Blaze Foley, and I've never heard of this guy. Thinking, why on earth? Would you end a, a great little series on somebody I'm not even familiar with? How am I going to connect uh-huh. with this at all? And and as I mentioned vaguely uh, in that last episode uh, of ours, that all I needed to do was get into the first maybe 30 seconds of the oh, beginning yeah. of that episode. And I was jaw dropped, just wanting to just dive into the deep end of this one. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I discovered an artist that I just find mesmerizing um uh, an unknown underrated name that um could have been legendary given more time um his songs have been uh, plucked by names like john prine and uh, merle haggard and Mm -hmm. songs of you know willie nelson uh as well i believe uh covered something of his um he's kind of a legend now and but he was just an unknown legend uh, at the time, and and the story is a bizarre one, and it's a tragic one, and uh, you know all that, w- along with these songs, just it's something magical. And it's a, that's the moment I always look for is to discover something that that moves me like that. And Blaze Foley was just one of those little discoveries that was always out there, and I somehow needed this Cinemax show <laughs> to present it to me, you know, in in what a twenty minute uh, dose. And, yeah. Uh, so let I'm, me ask you this. Yeah. What it, what was it about Blaze Foley that got you? No. But uh, by the way, and Mike Mike Judge's intro 
Yeah. It's sublime. It's perfect. Yes. The way he sets it up, you really do feel like, oh, it's okay. He, he, Mike Judge is aware that he, that none of us yeah. recognize the name. I mean, he, he does he does the introduction properly. He says, I, I know you're probably wondering, like you mentioned, wh- why am I ending this series with this guy? And and the way he presents it makes you like, okay, I better I better sit down and lean in because this one clearly has significance to my judge. So to you, what was it? You said in, the, in those first few, that first minute or so, what hooked you? What what was the thing? At the very beginning, he just uh, you know gives that uh, judge gives that little uh, brief description and then you know throws out the bait and and then they show a clip of yeah. Blaze actually being filmed by himself on a porch. Kind of a big guy. He's got this beard and just, uh, I'm th- okay, he looks like he belongs on Hee Haw, maybe, you know, uh, like Junior or whatever. <laughs> but I hear this. samples. Yeah, Junior samples. And I'm, and some, I, I hear the, the, the picking that he's doing, and it's very John Prine-ish. And I love John Prine. I love that style. And mm-hmm. then his voice kicks in, and it's this, this gorgeous low end. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I was like, oh, I was melting, you know, like, and, and then it, beyond that, it was the lyrics. The mm-hmm. lyrics that were that were being delivered were just the the one two punch, um, all of that. And then then you know it's not the full song; it's just a quick little sample, and then the credits roll. And then you have to now watch the whole thing and find out the story, and just a lot of bizarre stuff going on in his life, with Very. beautiful music to accompany it. Yeah, I, I guess I just obviously it's again, and that's what the the Mike Judge's whole series. The Tales of the Tour Bus thing, I think if there's a common theme, or at least there's a lesson that conflict. It's, it's <laughs> well, it's nice. It's it's great to hear the stories. They're very entertaining. Um, and they have value. But you also at the end of it, you realize, oh, I don't think I would have wanted to be one of the people that was actually there. Yeah. Um, those that are around to tell the tale, everyone's just lucky to be alive to tell the tale. Right. <laughs> or lucky to have any other sanity left after having to look after someone such as Blaze. You know, um, beautiful songwriter, uh, at times clearly a very sweet human being, he not all the time, but at yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, towards the end of his story, we actually get a glimpse into the largesse of his heart. Yeah. Um, certainly. Um, but certainly no one was going to say he was a picnic. Yeah. You know, um, and that's the larger thing we take from, uh, you know, we, we say we, we would like more Waylon Waylon Jennings in our country music and all that, but it's like, well, I don't know if you really wish, um, certain really rough years of Wayland's life. I don't know if we really wish that upon anybody just mm-hmm. for the sake of, Hey, I'd like to ha- hear a really nice, good new country song. Yeah. And that's what I, I take away from a lot of these episodes a- a- in total. Um, but the blaze fully episode that was the right one for Mike to end, to end on pardon the preposition. Yeah. And I'm really hoping they the come way back. he sequenced that was beautiful. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I, yeah. It was only <laughs> but, what, six or eight episodes for season. Yeah, there weren't that many. In fact, I just, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Austin and I had coffee with my friend Amy and her mom, Connie. And we see Connie in the Billy Joe Shaver episode. Oh, yeah. That's and, right. and it's funny because uh, <laughs> I had never seen someone I know animated like that. Like that was 
I know people who do voices for cartoons, so I'm used to hearing people I know their voices in animation. But to actually see someone I know done in such a lifelike animation, and it's her real voice. Connie's telling a story about when Billy shot somebody in the face. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. That's like not a joke. Um, but, but it's bizarre. It's like, oh, oh, or when Shooter, I mean, it just, it, Shooter's in his dad's episode. Yep. Like, oh, that's so, yeah, that looks just like Shooter. That's, that's, I guess that would be like if he's sitting on the couch, but right. happened to be animated across the room from me. <laughs> it's just really odd, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got to see it, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, thank you for suggesting it. And yeah. if you like that, there is a uh, a documentary that was done a few years back, and it's available through, uh, I believe it's through South Central Music Distribution, called Duct Tape Messiah. Now, <laughs> if you recall, that was in the episode. Uh, it was yeah. one of his little habits that he, uh, you know, following the uh, urban cowboy thing where everyone was <laughs> had the uh, the metal uh, uh, boot tips, metal tips and, and the, the, uh, tips, the yeah. collar tips and mm -hmm. all that stuff. He thought, that's just you know, ridiculous spending all that money. I got duct tape. It's just a shiny, you know, and so he started implementing these little bits out of duct tape on his clothes <laughs> and then it just turned into all kinds of like boots made of duct tape and everything was uh -huh. duct tape and um i believe they even when he was buried i think their duct tape was involved somehow um but there's there's this great long documentary on uh on blaze and it's uh you know if you really enjoyed uh tales from the tour bus that particular episode and you really want to discover this there's you know, more artists there is a lot more and the stories are great I'm going down to Greyhound Station gonna get a ticket to ride find a big fat lady with two or three kids and sit down by her side Uh, speaking of South Central music, we have another contest. I've got something else to give away. Last time we gave away a Jack Temption LP. This time mm -hmm. we've got something that you and I talked about before, Gene, um, coming through Amped Distribution and South Central Music, Strange Angels in Flight with Elmore James. I've got a CD copy of this Elmore James oh, tribute. Oh, cool. That's a good listen, man. Yeah. That's a good one to put on. You've got uh, Rodney Crowell, Tom Jones, Shelby Lynn, Allison Moore, Chucky e. Weiss, Keb Moe, so many more. Um, Warren Haynes. Warren Haynes, that's right. And Mickey Raphael's on there with Warren oh, Haynes right, yeah. and Billy Gibbons. Mm -hmm. So we want to give this puppy away. You think you've got a trivia question in your head that we could throw out there? Off the top of my head. Yeah. What Beatles song mentions Elmore James? Oh, that's a good one. What Beatles song mentions specifically mentions elmore james that's right okay all you got to do is go to the jukeboxgraduate.com and uh we'll have a link to where you can email us your answer to the trivia question which beatles song references or actually mentions elmore james yeah and uh, we'll throw your name in a hat to win a copy of strange angels in flight with elmore james so gene you want to hear a couple songs i'd love to hear a couple of songs all right let's launch into some john doe
Clinton, tore up in Cherokee County. I'm blowing smoke until I'm ready to choke. I'm shooting liquor, I'm feeling rowdy. Cause she ain't never coming back. The girls got Dallas on the mind. In my country shack. I've been sipping corn shine till I'm blind. I've been drinking corn shine. I've been hurting behind the pine curtain. Strung out on a bench. We had a baby. That's Jesse Dayton with Hurtin' Behind the Pine Curtain off his upcoming record, The Outsider, due out June 8th on Blue Elon Records. Prior to that, we heard John Doe, Go Baby Go, featuring Debbie Harry of Blondie fame from his 2016 album, The Westerner. Now, it's not a coincidence that you played those tracks, right? Are you sure? <laughs> because, again, mentioning, I was just in Austin uh, not that long ago, and uh, we played the rodeo. And John and Jesse came out to see us. And it was lovely to catch up with those guys. Um, and uh, I was excited to tell, told Jesse we're excited about his new release. And um, and he said, you know, whatever we, hopefully we can get him on the show. That's the plan. In fact, I just missed, he's in LA. Let's see, we're, we're now having this conversation on a Monday night. Last night he was in LA, did a gig. He invited me out. I said, I'm sorry, I'm in Florida. Um, but, uh, he gave me an open invitation to sit in whenever possible. Oh, wow. So, um, it, it's a, either it's a invitation or it's a threat. I'm not sure, <laughs> but cause, cause that guy, I think, I think he's, he's probably gearing to just really embarrass me and just smirk right. me out of my, it's a setup. out of my, out of my shoes. Exactly. He's such a great player. <laughs> um, but I love the, I love, I love this, this track it just has, it's just a 
burning hot stuff. I, I love I love the spirit of it. And of course, it's great to see John. John looked better than I've ever seen him. Uh, and I guess he's and John's lived in awesome for the better part of a year. He's yeah, told me. I had no idea he relocated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's always great to see John. Uh, it, it is strange. I know that you you know him a bit too. It, it's that is a strange thing. It's like to get a hug from him and a kind right. word from John Doe, and that you, you you try and just not get too spooked out by how much he makes up the soundtrack of of our youth. You know, for me, like to have him. You know, maybe every other time I see him, ask how my daughter's doing. Like that, that, what a that's really guy, the guy know? that's right? really the guy yeah. but but it's and 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 he i'm sure he's handled especially in southern california if you grew up in southern california or la x was just such a thing yeah um yeah it's it's just it's just really kind of a i don't know i don't know what to say about it it's, i don't mean to make too much out of it i don't mean to, i never mean to embarrass him but i always really appreciate what what a genuine person he is yeah, so Jesse, I'm sorry I couldn't be there last night. I'm I'm sure you killed it as you always do, and uh, and he was and Jesse was saying he did some shows where just him and the Reverend uh, Jim and the Reverend Horton Heat, kind of just with acoustic guitars, oh, really? and just tell stories and just play a song. And you, Jesse's like, I don't I don't know if that's gonna work. I don't you know. I think people kind of come to see us for this to kind of see it like a big rock thing. But he said he had a blast, and it's been really fun. The show's gone really well. I think that they plan on booking some more in the future. So keep your eye out for okay. that. I, I, I'd love to see it myself. Oh, that'd so, be awesome. Yeah, that's a, a hot tip for you uh, aficionados of, uh, of badass Texas guitar players, for sure. <laughs> he is fantastic. I've heard the record. Uh, it's Like I said, it's coming out in June, but I, I've had an advance uh, listen. But cool. uh, but yeah, it's it's a great record, and he's just got such a great sound. And just another example of another really low-end voice that i i love in in this kind of music mm-hmm. um hey i've got actually got a, a little bit of a jukebox graduate news to throw out there just make it real quick here okay. um, we've got a great loyal audience that uh that tunes in every episode and and you know communicates with us through the, the, hi, the facebook and everything yeah gene says hi from afar yeah great news uh just a few weeks ago or maybe a couple weeks ago uh listener kelsey was featured on an episode of Wheel of Fortune, and she kicked ass. <laughs> she, oh yeah, what she happened? won it all. Yeah, it was awesome. And uh, she won it all. She, yeah, she like won the episode, and it, it didn't start off well. Um, just unfortunate <laughs> spins, you know. And then it came down to where one person had a very obvious answer to solve, or wanted to spin for another letter instead of like a a G, chose J. And it was totally like, what? <laughs> and that went, then it went right to Kelsey. And then like, she solved it and got it, you know, just, oh. just took over from there. It was a great momentum change. And uh, it was great to see her on there. So uh, congrats. That's what happens when you listen to this show. You know, I was going to say, how's, how does that, how does that relate to us? We're responsible <laughs> good, for that. Did we luck. get a cut? Well, you know, take? how much did this person win? You know, the wheel of fortune, the, the circular thing going around and around like the record. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you're saying. No, yeah. I, no, I just made that up. But um, I, I could see that too. I just, I'd like to take some credit. No, I'm kidding. Well, congratulations. Um, that's great. Good for you, Kelsey. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> so, Gene, you're a big Van Morrison fan, bigger than me yeah. by like maybe an inch or inch and a half. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, Van Morrison. I didn't have a choice in Van Morrison. Uh, Van Morrison was something that my dad played in the house a lot, uh, and we had the the parent records full length of them yeah 
Here Comes the Night album, which was that was only released in America. Uh, and so it had um, it had Here Comes the Night, it has Gloria, it has Mystic Eyes, it has Don't Look Back, it has just it's a great, great record. Um, and then obviously, you know, the Tupelo Honey record and St. Dominic's Review, yeah. and I remember those, and you, Moon Dance was huge. I remember What's you that? doing a St. Dominic's preview at the Blue Cafe once, and you just owned it. It was oh, fantastic. And, and I think that was the, the very moment I realized that you were a Van Morrison fan. Oh, really? Because <laughs> every, every nuance of it was just like it was just a legit man so um oh wow you're too kind yeah well, we love I am we too love kind. playing that song <laughs> um and uh <laughs> and of course the astral weeks is the album he did in 1968 his first solo album the one yeah and it it it's just an it's an odd duck um well, coming right off all that uh the parrot stuff and the bang record stuff and brown eyed girl was a, a a very successful single the summer before but Astro Weeks is one of those records where either either you get it or you don't, or or it comes to you later. It's 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 odd to speak about as a rock and roll album because there's there's there aren't any electric instruments on it. Um, the song forms aren't really classic pop or rock songs in any sort of way. It's not quite a folk record. It's not quite a jazz record either. It's it just sits in this weird nebulous, but it certainly has um, the spirit of, of, of youth and of discovery. And of course the word that really comes across a lot is about transcendence. He really wrote it in a very stream of conscious style. So he, he, he can't honestly tell us what it's about, but there's been many, many theories and, and many, many pages have been written about this record. Um, uh, Lester bangs and still what's the most moving piece anyone's ever written about any music in my opinion uh lester bangs wrote about it in 1978 as one of his, his desert island album um mm. and i ser- implore anybody to search google that one the lester bangs essay about the astro weeks album uh grail marcus i think wrote an entire book about the re- the album and and really goes into every song and every measure of every song mm-hmm. and what those things could possibly mean. And we have a new addition to the, uh, to the literary canon of Astro Weeks now. And that's why we bring this up. So yes. going back either a year, yeah, a year ago, we played a show at the house of blues in Boston, which was just behind center field of Fenway park. Mm-hmm. And just a few blocks uh, from where I went to college briefly at the Berkeley College of Music. And a guy opened for us, uh, his name was Ryan Walsh. And I remember being out in front of house and was really, really impressed with his songs, particularly his lyrics. I, I thought his words were very evocative, unusual, um, but excellent phrasing. And um, I talked to him a little, a little bit after the show and uh, it's no surprise. It turns out he's he's a, a writer, not just a songwriter, but a writer as yeah. well. And he told me at the time that he was working on a book about Astral Weeks and specifically its roots in the city of Boston. Right. Van kind of conceived and wrote and developed what was going to be the sound of the album while living in Cambridge 
Um, even though he eventually he recorded the album in New York City with session players, uh, with jazz guys. But um, the process of the album really happened in Boston. And, and, and Ryan, I think, wanted to find out a little more about that. So he, he finally, he finished his book. It's called Astro Weeks, A Secret History of 1968 by Ryan H. Walsh. And um, I have a, just a couple of chapters left. I bought it yesterday. So it's, I'm, it's honestly, it's, it's so well-written. It's, it's a true page turner in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course I read maybe the forward and the first chapter and I was already texting Ryan with questions and comments. <laughs> and then he just very politely said, okay, well, I'm going to get to that. If you keep reading, I'll, I'll get to that a little later. And I realized, oh yeah, I should probably just start with my just interruptions finish <laughs> and finish the book first. Um, it, it is interesting because um, the book uh, tries to give a context, and it's hard to give a context for where Van Morrison was in his life because Van himself is is very very prickly and very secretive mm-hmm. and doesn't like to speak much about himself. So you were, you, you were, I, you know, Ryan, I don't think it was under any illusions that he was going to get any insight into Van and his state of mind. But what he could do was say, well, what else was happening uh, around Van? And in 1968, Boston, late 67 and early 68, Boston is a pretty kooky time. Yeah. Um, so the book, I love, and, and the book starts addressing things that li- th- I knew little things here and there. I come across readings and hearings, but I love the chapter um, about cinema, uh, about um, the Thomas Crown Affair, the original one. Uh, and and that was filmed in Boston. And also about Zubrinsky Point, uh, the Antonioni yeah. film. Um, and, and there was this strange commune cult, cult that yeah. had, that was there in in Boston at the time in Roxbury um which uh, a lot of people were involved in and yeah. it and it really kind of has a strange orbit about itself um i love the parts where he goes into um uh, obviously there's a chapter about the velvet underground and the club a uh, a uh, uh, a concert venue called the Boston Tea Party which um, I have bootlegs. My favorite bootleg from that venue actually is when uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac oh, yeah. did a two-night stand there. One of my favorite live recordings is a song called Jumping uh, Jumping at Shadows that they do uh, on one of those nights. It's still one of my favorite things to listen to over and over and over and over again. Um, that happened at the Boston Tea Party. But this that venue also sits as a very important place in, in which it kind of taught the nascent rock and roll, but rock and roll concert world. What size venue we are going to need? What, how we're going to book these shows, promote them, populate them. They needed certain venues. They couldn't play stadiums yet. They weren't that popular. Mm-hmm. But you know, playing a little VFW hall, not going to quite work either. So, like Bill Graham converted these old ballrooms. Um, and you had to find places that were big enough, but not too big. And the Boston Tea Party sits, sits as a very, very important venue in that way. Also, you had, of course, so many colleges in Boston. So you had a lot of young, educated people, and people were just starting to take rock and roll music seriously. It wasn't just frivolous kids' music anymore. Mm-hmm. And 
anyway, so he, it gets into all of that as well. And I really, really love the way Ryan has managed to, to create a context around Astro Weeks. And then also he, he makes it a bit personal. Um, he gives you insight as to some of the hardships of ha- trying to get people to talk about that time and how he had to track people down. Very entertaining stuff about Peter Wolf. Yeah, I love that part. I'm I'm not as far into the book as you are, but yes, there's. I'm not even going to say I could give up the surprise, but there's uh, something that comes up in the the Peter Wolf segment that uh, I'm like, really, that exists. <laughs> well, well, because in in some ways we we're traveling with Ryan as he's trying to get to the bottom. As he's of getting the things. answers, yeah. And also, I love, I appreciate Ryan has his own. Um, personal experience with astral weeks uh um and i know i have my own personal we, relationship yeah, with that album do. um you know it's one of those one of those albums that many late nights man that one that one can really save you from, from, from some pretty desperate moments yep, you know I agree. and that's the thing if you if you go to youtube and bring up astral weeks by van morrison and look at the comments section and look at how heartfelt people are about that record the way people speak about that record and what it means to them should be an indication of of uh, of why it's so special if i ventured in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream where my world still runs crack so that's uh, so hopefully we'll be hearing from Ryan later on after you and I finish the book and we get time. I'm sure we'll get to get him to talk about it. OK, um, and I'd love to pick his brain about many other. I'd love to know what other albums he has. planned. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, and it also helps, you know, again, Boston is a very special city to me. It was when I went to college there. I arrived there. I was 17 years old. I'd never been east of Tucson in my life. So it was my first time really away from home and everything. And uh, Boston means a lot to me. And and I was really glad to have this book serve as some sort of um, alternate history of that city mm-hmm. that I really, really appreciate, you know. And there's great stuff about the Boston Strangler case and a lot of stuff happening at that time. And and it makes me want a book like this about so many other records, by the way. But, you know, we'll, we'll see if Brian's got that. It's in good it. to start or, with this one. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with this one. Exactly. <laughs> you know my name. I'm starting a war. I'm the boy next door, building up an empire. I'm devoid of any joy, working on my next disaster. No matter why, it's time to die. I wanna see what's after.
right. That was Monster by Sadler Vaden. My dear friend, I spoke about him on the last episode. Some of you may know Sadler from uh, playing guitar in Jason Isbell's band. Some of you may remember him from being in uh, Driving and Crying. But uh, that's a new song of his. It's a digital release. It's not attached to an album. He just was inspired. He wrote it. He cut it. And he put it out, which so many people are doing. And I love it because it shows off his a lot of his influences, particularly uh, uh, glam and Brit pop is kind of in there. But he's also addressing current state of affairs as he sees it, which I think we need uh, more artists to do. I'm happy for Sadler, and I'm really, really proud that we got to play that. Uh, now, I am, of course, still on the road, and I sadly will not be available to talk to Tom Zimney, who's the director of the upcoming HBO documentary on Elvis called The Searcher. Uh, we are very fortunate to have Tom spend time with us. It's a big deal for us. And also, he's allowed us to uh, to share the trailer for the movie. So let's listen to the trailer. And after that, Dave's going to talk to Tom. My type of music is a combination of country music and gospel and rhythm and blues all combined. As a child, I was influenced by all of that. A time when the country was into racism and segregation, he was a young kid. He was not afraid to go and be exposed to it so he could learn even more about it. The American team just knew it rocked. No white music had ever done that. He was snatched from the ordinary life of a young man into a place that no one else had ever been in our culture. Elvis is a big business. Everybody was trying to get every penny they could out of whatever they could. He's feeling that he's not in control. He wanted to grow. He wanted to evolve as an artist. Colonel Parker, the record company, they would say to him, you don't fulfill your contracts, you won't do anything. Elvis said, I'm starting to feel the pressure. I'm obligated. I don't think there's a way out for me. He felt trapped. An artist like Elvis, he's actually pretending when he's home to be normal. And when he goes out on stage at night, it's who he actually is. Deep in my heart, there's a trembling question. Still, I am sure that the answer this is the mysterious part about music. The people who mean it are generally the ones who are processing some kind of loss. And we connect to it. No matter how frustrating the lapses in his career have been, he remains an artist, an American artist. Elvis was a searcher. He said to me, I want to be able to reach and feel what we all go through as human beings. Right we here at the Jukebox Graduate are very pleased to have with us today Grammy Award winning filmmaker and director of the brand new HBO documentary, Elvis Presley, The Searcher, Mr. Tom Zimney. Welcome, buddy. Greetings. Good to be here. I'd like to start at the very beginning for you. Um, can you tell us how you found your way into filmmaking? You know, I started first having interest as a child in photography and theater and then stumbled upon that magic connection of uh, music and images together in the great world of uh, early days of video, but also a lot of the classic films like Gimme Shelter yeah. and The Last Waltz. All that was a huge influence for me. So 
early on, I spent a lot of time with film and music and being connected to that in many ways and just pursued that through the School of Visual Arts and formal education. And then, you know, just the beauty of watching a lot of films and, and coming uh, to the place of being a director, starting out at first as an editor right, and being in the cutting room and, and getting a place of understanding how things are put together and really the storylines and how they're made in the cutting room was a huge influence uh, to uh, documentaries was a huge influence for me okay. as an assistant editor. Yeah. Cause you started doing that with uh, the wire. Is that correct? Yeah. I went on, I, I cut uh, three seasons of the wire and that was a great experience working with a variety of directors and other editors. And really the beauty of the wire was being around David Simon and that team and people, writers like George Pelicanos, uh, that had a huge influence on me as a director, but also as an editor in telling story. And 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 really, it leads to my work with Bruce Springsteen, where mm. you um, start to develop a sensitivity that leans towards what works for the narrative and what works for the story. And you start to get uh, finding a place that, um, you know, you, you hone in on some of those editorial skills and storytelling devices and being around those guys like John Landau, like David Simon, like Bruce Springsteen. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing to see their work in the narrative mm-hmm. scope, but also the power of editing. What is said and what is left behind, I think is key. Yeah. Now you kind of touched on my next question here. Uh, you know, I was going to say there's a, a wide variety of music docs out there and I'm sure between you and I and, and Eugene, we've probably seen the large majority of them. Are there any uh, music films that you consider near perfect in their approach or extremely influential in the methods that you practice and the films you make? You know, the George Harrison Scorsese film is a great example of amazing editing um, in telling a, a story of an artist that you're familiar with, but also its use of archive. I, I've always connected to the works of Art Scorsese, mm-hmm. but also um, you know, a close friend, but also a giant inspiration, I would have to say, is Alex Winter. Right. Uh, who's working on a documentary about Frank Zappa. Yeah, I've heard about and that. And he comes out of it. I've worked with him in the narrative scope, and that was a huge uh, experience because it, 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 it opened up the ideas of, of cutting with music and, mm-hmm. and also just, you know, I find that he does a lot of amazing documentary work and choices mm-hmm. and has an understanding of music that I relate to, which it's always a surprise on how he handles score. And uh, for me... He's a, a a great resource, but also a great friend. Uh, yeah, I've read I've read a little bit about that uh, Zappa documentary that he's working on. I can't imagine what it would be like to to work with that and have access to that uh, that archive. You know, it's some it, amazing stuff. It's the stuff. next film. Yeah, it's the next film that I'm looking forward to seeing, and uh, his stuff always is a great surprise. Yeah. Um, okay, so as far as the Searcher goes, what would you say makes this film different than any other Elvis presentation that came before it? I think the things that I was hoping and the things I discussed with John Landau to make this film different, the searcher story different with life of Elvis Presley was really trying to keep the focus on Elvis, the artist and the focus to be on the music. There's a lot of other films and books that covered the other details that I felt as a filmmaker, I wasn't interested in and also just didn't really convey anything of interest to me of lifestyle choices or, you know, details of his Memphis Mafia days or Cadillac right. giving away and things like that. I felt like there was a generation that lost this opportunity to connect with both the music and the artist. Right. And sitting with Priscilla Presley was a key thing for me because 
she gave me a lot of the details that helped find the soul of the film. Along with Tom Petty and, and Bruce Springsteen, I think those were voices that really um, painted a, a portrait of, of Elvis that that was complex and honest and also just brought the focus back to the music. And that was a key ingredient for me to make this movie. And my dialogue with John Landau especially was, let's make a film about Elvis, the artist. Yeah, now the one thing that I, I've noticed is that uh, something kind of unique, you don't really see this often, but you're, the commentaries you've got from the artists, uh, it's not on screen. Um, is that is that part of uh, what you wanted to have to to avoid distraction on the storyline? You know, working in documentary films for years, I had this opportunity to to edit, and one of the things that I realized was that sometimes when you cut to a person sitting in a chair, you take the person out of the dream of the film, the landscape of the film, mm -hmm. and in some ways you pop them into a present day reality. So with the story of Elvis, I wanted to have no voices appear on screen. We would never cut to a talking head sitting in a chair. We would never use the traditional language of that documentary. It's been done before, but right. I wanted to make it in a space that was much more a bit of an Elvis dreamscape where you stayed in Elvis's world of home movies, outtakes, archival footage, mm -hmm. and stills. And that was, it was really key to find the language of the film that way, but also to tell the story differently. There wasn't going to be someone on screen talking who was just a fan. They right. really had to have their, their their credentials to get into the film in some ways was that their life had to have changed because of the music of yeah. Elvis. Yeah. And that's why you end up with Tom Petty and Robbie Robertson and Emmylou Harris. Yeah. You hear in their voices this commitment to the music, but also they themselves are artists who have had a long journey and you relate to the stories that they can uh, share with you because mm -hmm. they both love the music, but they've experienced some of the things that Elvis went through because Elvis was the first. There, there was no one before him, and, and in some ways he, he led the charge on the touring lifestyle and the yeah. rock and roll lifestyle, yeah. and he was the first. Now, uh, with the, the Elvis uh, commentary footage, I was going to say, like you've with the Springsteen documentaries that you've put together, you definitely had access to him to do the sit downs and uh, and and talk with him about you know where you wanted to go with this. But with Elvis, you he's not here. You're relying on on the archive. And uh, did how, did you find it uh, challenging to to sift through the archive and find the pieces uh, you know the spoken pieces of him telling certain points that that you wanted to have in the storyline. It's a great challenge and it's a great high in documentary filmmaking to go through thousands of stills and audio recordings, finding the right thing that tells you the narrative that you want to tell. And with the Elvis Presley film, I found a book that had a documentation of every audio recording of him talking. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's the beauty of Elvis is that almost every day's recording yeah, yeah. reference. So tracking down those recordings, um, I had a team of people and there'd be times that we'd find outtakes and piece together Elvis talking. And, you know, you just don't give up until you find the story that you're looking for. And, and at times with tracking down footage, you tap into the collector's world. So, yeah. you know, there's bootleg uh, soundboard recordings in there. The documentary has super films. Mm -hmm. There's, there's archival stills from Graceland. There's collective stills. 
you go the full search because you're looking for images that present an artist as a human, but also feels like these are images and sounds I haven't seen before. And uh, they tell the story. That's the big part. They have to tell the story. Now, did you have full access to the uh, the Elvis official archives, the, the vault? Yeah, I went into the vault and had full access and went through thousands of photographs and wandered around Graceland and filmed Graceland at all hours of the night. And uh, that all happened because of Jerry Schilling and Priscilla Presley mm -hmm. and Jack Snowden at Graceland, who gave me full access to the space of, Grace, of Graceland. And, and then I was able to make that a character in the documentary in many ways. Right. His home, yeah. Yeah, none of that would have happened without, you know, their participation. Yeah, okay, so as far as the the vault there is concerned, you, you went through a massive amount of material. Um, were you surprised at the amount of things, anything you discovered in there that to this day still remains unseen or unheard? I mean, considering how much time has passed, you'd think that everything sh that could have gone out should have gone. And I know, like, the, the Follow That Dream Records label uh, tends to put out a lot of uh, fabulous collections of, of outtakes and rehearsals and um, quintessential uh, releases um, from Elvis's catalog with all the bonus stuff on there. But uh, did you find anything that you were just really surprised? Like, wow, that that still hasn't seen the light of day? Well, one of the key things that we found that was used in the documentary, thanks to Ernst Johnson, uh, was who does all the archiving, but also runs that Follow That Dream record company, mm -hmm. Follow That Dream Records, um, was they... The estate uh, stumbled upon a recording of, uh, that Ernst heard about and, and got a hold of of Gladys Presley singing, and, yeah. and that's on the soundtrack. And the soundtrack is a three CD set, and that's an amazing recording of her singing gospel at home with Elvis. Yeah, I was going to say I, I saw that on the uh, I, I listened to the entire soundtrack, the three disc version, a couple times already. It came out last week, and uh, I was anxiously waiting to hear that track because I've only heard her speaking in some interviews, but I've never heard her sing. And I, you know, being the mother of one of the greatest singers of our generation, I, I was curious, you know, how, yeah, sure. you know, wh think, where does that come from? There's a beauty in it. There's a beauty in that archival recording because you, you hear the simplicity and the love of gospel. It's not yeah. an, an amazing vocal rendition of anything special, but it is special that it's Gladys and they're at home. And it's a magical moment in the film because it ties to the space of Graceland and, and Graceland was so important to Elvis. And when you look at Graceland, you got to realize that he bought that place for his parents. So finding that archival recording of Gladys was really a great moment. And my other favorite moment was filming in the middle of the night. It didn't end up in the film, but it was like one of those magical moments that only someone who loves vinyl could understand, which mm -hmm. was filming in the jungle room where we had the camera placed in a certain way where I needed to move Elvis Presley's home stereo. And to do that, I had a couple of people from the Graceland estate who were dressed in white smocks and, and white gloves, mm -hmm. and they would slowly move it three <laughs> inches to the left. Yeah. And when they lifted the stereo, the back of the stereo wedged in the very back was a demo. Uh, it was a, an, an early mix of Moody Blue that fell out of the side of the stereo. On a like a forty-five, like a test pressing. On a or forty-five, like a test pressing oh, of Elvis singing yeah. "Moody Blues." <laughs> so somebody sent him an early mix of it, and he played it on the stereo. And there, it was wedged between the back of the stereo for many, many years, and came out, and fell on the ground. And the chief archivist was there, 
And we decided, well, wait a minute, this is an amazing moment that only, you know, that happens once. And yeah. put it on Elvis' stereo, <laughs> listen to it at three in the morning in the Graceland Jungle Room. Well, it's hard to be a gambler betting on the number that changes every time. When you think you're gonna win, you think she's giving in. A stranger's all you'll find. Oh my that was God. one of the magical moments that didn't end up in the film, but was part of the experience of making the Elvis Presley documentary, The Searcher. I absolutely love that story. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, as far as the, uh, the the interviews, back to the commentaries and whatnot, uh, you managed to get the final interview with Scotty Moore. Um, can you tell us about that that time with him? Having the last interview with Scotty Moore, I was it, it's it's a very very poignant memory for me because he was such a gracious man and and he was very weak at the time. And I sat at his home kitchen table over a cup of coffee and talked about Elvis, and he was very very generous with his time. And, and I, I I felt really honored to be with him and, you know, have him part of the film is a great having him to be part of the film was a great thing. And I I just feel really grateful that both Tom Petty and and, oh, and yeah. Scotty Moore are, are, are part of this film. Now, who else did you get commentary from? You, you mentioned Emmy Lou Harris, uh, Robbie Robertson, Bruce, uh, John Landau. What other names you can know, people look for? You know, in doing the film, I interviewed over 50 people, and some of the people that ended up in the final cut were, uh, were the voices of Alan Light, uh, a journalist and a rock writer and a book, uh, an author, um, and Warren Zanes, who wrote the Tom Petty book. And, mm. and Warren Warren contributes a lot to the films, and I, and I just really love working with him. He's a great writer and friend. Uh, other people would be some archival recordings of various recordings like Colonel Tom Parker or Elvis himself. Okay. But I also yeah. tapped into the Memphis world with David Porter and David Porter presented an amazing view of Memphis at the time. And also David Porter gave me such great understanding of Elvis, the artist in the studio and Elvis, the artist developing and David Porter gave, you know, uh, me such, gave me a, a, a portrait of Memphis that really helped uh, describe the experiences that a young Elvis Presley had on Beale Street. So I'm enormously grateful to David, and uh, he's a good soul. Now, The Searcher features uh, some interesting, very interesting, previously unseen fan footage, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, how did you go about finding new content to use from collector circles? I had a team of people working with me who reached out to different collectors on different boards and Ernst Jurgensen brought me to different collectors and, and I ended up, you know, getting all kinds of newsreel outtakes and super eight film that's never been seen. And it, it just, you tap into the collector world and, and you hope and pray. And sometimes the things are out there and they, they, they just don't deliver. And other times you find magical moments. And we found one collector who shot, a bunch of the Vegas shows that ends up in the documentary and he shot it with a tripod and it's perfectly exposed and it's amazing performance. Wow. And we are able to find the soundboard and I sunk it up by eye. And oh, wow. it's an amazing moment of combining many different pieces together to 
represent an Elvis that has not been seen yet. Wow. You know, I've seen the trailer. We, uh, you know, this is, uh, we're recording this before the premiere on HBO. It, uh, the film has screened at a couple places already, uh, including Graceland, South by Southwest. But uh, it does premiere this coming weekend, uh, the 14th of April. Um, I've seen the trailer and I've watched it several times. And there's some great fan footage. It looks like fan footage in there. Footage I've never seen before. And there's, in particular, there's one... Uh, a uh, bit where Elvis has like a baby blue suit on and it's not I've never seen that before I've you know I'm used to seeing the the stage jumpsuits that sort of thing but this appeared to be just a like a blue suit and yeah just... there's there's a, there's a the the documentary has moments in super 8 footage that really break past just the traditional aloha concert yeah and that's what everybody's used to seeing right is the, is yeah, the, yeah. You know, what happens with the, because Elvis didn't tour Europe, that image of him in the white outfit from Aloha sort of cements many people's vision of Elvis Presley, the performer. Yeah. And I hope with the documentary and I hope with the storytelling and I hope with the interviews and the music that it's conveyed is that we can shatter the shorthand version of Elvis Presley and the history of Elvis Presley by really exploring this artist in a deeper way. And I think that it's pretty it's pretty evident when you look at the catalog that this was a guy who was really searching for sounds all his life and, and even during his darkest points connected to the music deeply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eugene and I were uh, talking earlier about this. The soundtrack is just a, a wonderful way to assist in telling the story, you know, of the man through song choices alone. Um, how heavily involved were you in the selection of the music for the film and the soundtrack? The soundtrack and the film's music selection um, really came from me in the editing room and it's something that I'm highly involved with. I also have a great conversation going on for the past 18 years with John Landau. So there's many moments that I would get into conversation with John and, and he would talk to me about different tracks and different points of view. And he was somebody who I, I share the, the credit with the soundtrack with mm -hmm. because I feel like John has been such a great presence on this film and also my filmmaking career for the past 18 years. Right. But the, the core of the music um, came from me and deciding on what this film was telling me was working There's a key moment that John brought to my attention where you really get to see and hear an Elvis that it's not a hit track by any means, but or a common track, but it, it is a powerful example of an early Elvis track. Yeah, And it really put the film, it kickstarted in the right direction. And the other thing is, I had long extended chats with Bruce and John about the Dixie medley and, and the power of that. And I feel like the, they both were influential to me on looking at that sequence differently and, and looking at the beauty of it. And Tom Pettis brings a lot of that to the documentary too, where he turns the perspective on on those stage shows from the 70s and says look at the beauty of this power of this band and yeah look at the audacity of this approach of two choirs and and you know all all that shapes your choices in the editing room when you're building a soundtrack yeah. and all that it's part of my creative dialogue i just felt that there were so many songs on here that uh either you know lyrically they spoke about what elvis was going through uh at certain times you know um Lonely Man, Separate Ways. You know, you've even got like Old Shep is on there, which 
my God, that is a sad song. But, you know, that's like the yeah. first song he, he ever sang publicly, right, at age 10 or so? Yeah. So I think that's great that that's in there as sort of a milestone of you know, part of that story. So every song seems like it has a, a purpose. Well, there's no, there's, you know, there's never a moment, I, I really believe this from the people I've worked with in the past as an assistant editor, as an editor and working with directors like Alex Winter, but also just in my own directing, there's never a moment that's just B-roll. There's never a moment that you just throw score underneath the narrative. All these choices matter. The musical landscape mm -hmm. matter. The tone matters. And the lyrical content of a song can drive the emotional level uh, to the place that the narrative needs to be. So when you're thinking about Elvis coming home from the army, you could put GI blues underneath there and it's a up-tempo pop song. Yeah. Or you can think about the state of mind of Elvis during mm -hmm. that time, leaving behind Priscilla, mm -hmm. lost his mother and about to take the biggest challenge to come back to rock and roll after his stint in the army. Right. Lonely man, it becomes the perfect musical yeah, definitely. moment. But then you find an outtake that's just the guitar and vocal. And you yeah. go, oh my God, there's two choices here. So let's start with the full track and tear it down to just the acoustic and his voice. In that is the journey I like to take when making these films. And in that is the journey that I, I've had for the past 18 years with Bruce Springsteen and people like John Landau, where you explore the use of the music and how it will drive the narrative and you explore the feelings in these songs and, and, and you keep it in this place that moves the story forward to that emotional level you want to stay at. And that's what I really loved about like the selection of Lonely Man and some of these, uh, the stripped down, the acoustic tracks or the stripped down take of uh, Suspicious Minds, you know, you're, you're pulling away some of the production, some of the gloss to get the bare essential of the machine inside, you know, and it takes you back to the Sun Records days as well, where it was just that small group playing around a microphone and to hear some of these stripped down versions really just uh, brings it down to the, the essential stuff. And I, I think that's a, a very effective thing because everyone's heard suspicious minds plenty of times on the radio, but to hear this alternate version that you chose, I, I think it may be take six, I forget, but it's uh, the organ is kind of prominent in there. So, Oh, I haven't heard. I don't recall that so much. And it, it changes your, your attention. And I just, I, I love that. I love pulling away the surface to get to really the heart of, of who he was musically and what he was going after. Well, you really hope, you really hope that the audience finds new surprises, but yeah. when you revisit songs that they know, you hope that they can appreciate it in new ways. And that's what the outtakes give you is this example of a new focus. Um, not only a focus on the vocal and guitar, but also arrangement and constantly bringing forward the idea that Elvis was a musician that worked out the details of performance that sometimes get lost you know his vocal stylings or his approach to a song like now or never mm -hmm. or like a baby and 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 how he worked in the studio obtaining a certain sound but also how he took in different influences and um you know the the influences of elvis's culture i try to spend a lot of time on and not just check a box and say elvis love gospel and move on i really right. try to spend detailed time in both memphis white gospel black gospel and the influences that made elvis presley make something that became to be known as music elvis music yeah. you know that's it's this great 
combination of rhythm and blues and country and R&B and rock. Um, by the 70s, all those elements and genres are there and present. And uh, that's why we end up with Elvis and in one show giving us songs from like fever to a three dog night song to mm -hmm. you know hound dog it's all it's all there yeah i love the song selections that he was making in the in the 70s you know from gordon lightfoot to bg songs i mean it was just such such you know the song words i've always loved that and i was so pleased to see you include that in the soundtrack yeah but yeah. It, it, and even doing uh i think by 76 or 77 he was doing uh olivia newton john songs yeah, uh, yeah no, it's there. all there yeah. And yeah, just beautiful stuff. Um, now, so knowing that, um, what direction, I mean, this is pure speculation, but what direction do you think Elvis's music might have gone had he lived longer? I don't know. I just know that the Elvis Presley that I recognize on working on this movie was someone who was really interested in exploring different types of music and different sounds. And, and, and the tragedy is that for me is that he wasn't an artist who was surrounded by people who wanted to support his vision of growth. Yeah. And in time that took him down. So I, I could only speculate that he would have been wanting to be in the studio on the road and, you know, just growing and searching for a sound. So he was continually searching, but like given the, the stark contrast of his, uh, his presence in the fifties compared to the sixties compared to the seventies, uh, at what point do you think, he might've been at his most satisfied. I think that um, Elvis has pockets of, I, I, you know, if I was to project what, when Elvis was the most happy in, I would, I would say that I have no clue because there's moments in the sixties, he's doing bad films and he's quite sad, but yeah. he comes out with a glorious gospel album mm -hmm. that is just full of love and, and energy and power. So, you know, it's just really hard to understand the different chapters of Elvis's music because there's so many different things going on and so many different distractions. But in all of it, if you think about the song Tomorrow is a Long Time, that was released on a soundtrack of Spin Out, right. which was you know one of the many films that he was churning out that yeah. had a very weak soundtrack. Mm -hmm. But there's this gem that's a B-side, a bonus song, and it's an amazing ad adaptation of an Odetta song. That's what's interesting about like some of those uh, soundtracks. A lot of them were considered just cookie cutter type collections, but yeah, there's there are some real gems tucked in there uh, that I'm sure he was quite proud of, and but they got lost because they were on a movie soundtrack that just you know uh, if it wasn't like a a bop and party kind of song, maybe it got overlooked. But there's there's a beautiful song on uh, the Harem Scarum soundtrack. And I mean, there's just they're like you said, yeah, they're they're here and there. You really you really can't take in the full story of Elvis's recording career easily because you can't just write off the movie soundtracks. There's gems all over, and you know the beauty of this process for me is that I hope that everyone gets a chance to look at the artist differently and explore the catalog and the contributions he's made. Yeah, and also get a sense of America, uh, America that that gave opportunity to a person like Elvis Presley and, and the beauty of influence with race and, and other artists. Yeah, there was a lot going on. What was the first Elvis record you ever owned and, or even your first Elvis memory that you can recall? My first Elvis memory was a RCA cassette that I got for Christmas with my slam and shut cassette player. And uh, <laughs> I was about nine years old and, and played repeatedly the song Trouble. And uh, after rolling out that, 
I think I graduated to the Aloha special from an A-track bought from Kmart. Oh, nice. New Jersey. <laughs> so from there, I, I remember GI Blues and, and uh, you know, it went on from there. And I actually worked on a TV special about Elvis and then started getting all the box sets years back. Yeah. So in a weird way, I've been making this film for many years. And uh, <laughs> I'm enormously grateful for, for the chance to tell the story of Elvis, but also I, I'm just really grateful that Priscilla Presley helped me out so much with, yeah. with uh, the access to Graceland and storytelling and Jerry Schilling especially too. Yeah. Well, folks, The Searcher airs April 14th on HBO and it will be available on demand after the premiere. I encourage you all to tune in or set your machines. This is truly a special one, even for the long-term diehard fans who think they've seen or heard it all. You're getting an all-new angle on one of the greatest stories ever told from the inside. Elvis Presley, The Searcher on HBO. Tom, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and share your thoughts on your latest achievement. Congratulations, my friend. Thank you. Good to talk to you, and I, I know I'll around Amoeba and we'll buy some records down the road. I can't wait. Thanks, man. This has been great. Take care, man. All right, you too, man. Be good. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in the sky. And we're back. We've got Gene back on the line, all the way from Omaha, Nebraska. That's right. It's mutual. I'm kidding. That's a, that's a, a terrible <laughs> oh, no. reference. I'm old, right? <laughs> that just dated me. <laughs> um, well, not as old as, as Marlon Perkins was at the time, oh but, but that is... <laughs> Touche. Um, we had Jim Fowler doing all the hard work anyway, but oh, that's a whole other... Right. He was risking his life every damn day, uh, just mm -hmm. like you are out in Omaha. Um, <laughs> it's not that drastic. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's a lovely town. Thank goodness. Uh, we are now going to share with you some of the latest music that's really turning our wheels. Gene, do you want to start us off? Okay. Yes. I, okay. So, uh, Nathaniel Ratliff and I, I always feel like I'm getting his last name wrong. Nathaniel Ratliff and the night sweats out of Colorado. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love their last album. Big, big fan of it. They've got a new album coming out. Their new song uh, is called shake. It's fantastic. Really, really good. so good. I heard it not knowing who it was. It was one of the guys. I heard it and I went, I was like, who is this? Who's? And I had to ask Siri to tell me. Yeah. And then Siri comes up with a guy I already like. So very excited about that. Also, a band called Prima Donna has a song called Press Your Luck. Okay. Really, really cool. Uh, and, and we've never talked about the band Vintage Trouble, have we? I think you've mentioned the name, but we never got into them. That's another great, great, exciting band. Great. They have a great front man. Um, and it's like, just kind of like a, like a three, like a power, like a rock power trio fronted by a classic soul man. Um, and they have a song called knock me out that I'm really, really into, but the big track is the joke by Brandy Carlisle. Okay. And of course that song has been out for a while. I think it came out. It's been out there for months. Yeah. And I had read some things and I just never got around to hearing it. And then when I first heard it, this is very instructive. I immediately had a prejudice about the song. Um, 
And what it was was the the chord sequence and the key and even the string arrangement and how it, it, how it gets, becomes anthemic reminded me very, very much of another song by another artist from about three years back Okay, that I won't, I won't even name. It's not important. And it also, but it was produced by the same guy that produced this new Brandy Carlisle album. Hmm. And I just thought, huh, well, didn't he notice a similarity? <laughs> and so all of a sudden I wasn't giving this song its chance. I was distracted yeah. by something. And, um, and I think I just kept listening and then the lyrics got me and I was able to just push past my, 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 you know, free judgment, my, my, my prejudice on it and really, really, really embraced the song. And then, uh, I, I went, now here's the thing. And so it's, it's beautifully recorded. She's, she's got this really big voice and she's mm-hmm. a great, great singer. Um, and the song is an anthem. Uh, it's, it's a song about, about underdogs and it tries to give them a voice and it's, it's wonderful. And so I wanted to go online to see if there's any footage of them doing it live, you know, and I can't. So my favorite ver- and there's a lot of footage of them doing the song because okay. they've, they've been doing late night TV and they were on Howard Stern. And there's plenty of examples of them doing the song live. My favorite is uh, they did it on the uh, Stephen Colbert show. And there's really one main reason why it's my favorite. It's that going into the second verse on one particular line, she does this little catch in her throat. It sounds like she's actually laughing as she's singing the uh, the lyric. Mm -hmm. And that just kills me. It, it, it's just this. And now, by the way, I've other performances. She does that same little hiccup in her voice on other lines. So to be fair, and I don't mean this as, as a criticism at all. Just, it is an affectation. It's clear. She's in complete command of her voice. Yeah. And, and, and she's, and she's using it to convey something, and she's doing it very, very, very well. Stephen Colbert performance of the joke, she sings, it's your brother's world, and that's when she laughs, and it kills me. And it's the perfect line for that, that affectation to show up. You get discouraged, don't you, girl? It's your brother's world for a while longer. So anyway, I'm just, you know, it's one of those things where in the moment when I was not giving the song a fair shot because it resembled something else, I was only cheating myself. Mm-hmm. I was only depriving myself of enjoying what I think is a very special song. And uh, here I am at this advanced age, uh, and Lord knows I, I listen to a lot of tunes, and I can still hopefully be humble enough to call myself out and not not withhold my ears to something that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And by the way, her whole, the whole album is really, really good. So by the way, I forgive you. And it's <clears throat> so far, probably my album of the year. Really? Yep. And also I advise you, if you do listen to it, it's, it has to be listened to in sequence. Okay. The, the, not for any conceptual reason, just in terms of the, the tempos and the dynamics across all the songs it's best to hear it in sequence. Very, very much. I realize that I, like the Lucas Nelson's uh, album from last year, 
um, I feel the same way. It doesn't okay. work in shuffle mode. Yeah. If you're going to listen to it, listen to it in sequence because of in Lucas's case, some songs go long, some stay short. The groove, it, Lucas's album is so much more groove oriented that it's really important to hear it the way in, in order. Mm-hmm. And in Brandy's album, <clears throat> I think the, the order is very important because there's, there's more than a, one anthem on it and they're spaced out just right. So, um, so that's, that's a, the key track for me right now. And, and, and honestly, so far my album of the year. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to give that a, a solid listen start to finish. Please do. Please do. All right. Here's some tracks that I've been, uh, grooving on lately. There's, um, an artist by the name of Soccer Mommy. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and when I first uh-huh. saw that, I just thought, wow, what a throwaway kind of, and why would you do that? And because I, I, I was judging by the name, you know, and it's like, well, Fair enough. I, I accidentally heard a song, went to look and see who it was because I really enjoyed it. And it's Soccer Mommy. Okay. So it's Sophie Allison, <laughs> who's a young 20 something uh, Switzerland transplant to Nashville um, reminds me a lot of uh, the artist by the name of Feist uh, oh, vocally yeah. and th- mm-hmm. there's a song called Still Clean off the album Clean brand new 2018 record and it's kind of categorized as bedroom pop which I kind of like oh I never heard that yeah I kind of like the sound of that and I want to I kind of want to google around and see who else shows up under that category because uh, this is a really nice intimate record uh, there's another group called Camp Cope, which is a young trio of girls from Melbourne, Australia, which there's a lot of a lot of great music coming from outside this country this year. Um, mm-hmm. They've got a song called The Opener. Now, this is a very aggressive uh, trio of girls. The song The Opener is uh, very much an underdog song, as you had mentioned on a, a previous track um, yeah. by Brandy. And there's a lot of uh, angst in these vocals and uh it really got my attention that was another one that just showed up on a random playlist uh camp cope um there's a new album by the decemberists oh, i've been a fan of for quite a while they've mm-hmm. got a new album called i'll be your girl and on the very first listen i was just kind of cruising through the whole record and nothing was really grabbing me not that it was a bad record it was a fine record but there was nothing standing out to where i was gonna you know brag about it and then I get to the very last track, and I think, well, I guess that's that's about it. And this last track just strangled me. <laughs> it was beautiful. Really, it was so simple too. The title track, yeah, it just it's so it's such a simple, beautiful little song. And then I went back and and in context from start to finish again. I mean, I far more respect into that record. Um, I it's called "I'll Be Your Girl." Uh, there is a deluxe edition which caters to me. It's one of those. Um, crazy vinyl box sets that it's kind of like that Ryan Adams one that came out last year, but there's not a stage oh, or whatever. What this is kind of like, I was a, gonna say, it's like, it's, it's about the same size and all the vinyls on like, you know, the different lifesaver style colors, you know, it's all like a big rainbow inside, but like the, they're in pages and they're like pop-up pages, like those pop-up books. So it's gimmicky as can be. So uh, one day I'll, I'll throw down some cash and pick that up. In the meantime, um, it's a good record. Go check it out. Uh, there's a new one coming out at the end of this month by Willie Nelson called Last Man Standing. There's been two or three mm-hmm. tracks that have been circulating and are really enjoying it. Um, let's see. Neil Young and Promise of the Real, speaking of Lucas, uh, has a new uh, record out 
uh, called Paradox, which is a soundtrack to a Netflix movie that was made by uh, Neil's significant other at the moment, Daryl Hannah. Uh-huh. Um, she shot it. Willie's, uh, it does narration in it. Uh, Lucas uh, Nelson is in it. Neil is in it. Um, I started watching it, but I haven't been able to finish it yet, uh, just due to time. But the soundtrack is is quite good. There's a track called Show Me that I really enjoy that reminds me of the the uh, Harvest Moon period uh, for Neil. Uh, and then lastly, there's just a couple things. There's uh, I won't go into this too much, but I'm, as you remember from last, last year, uh, I was a big fan of Richard Edwards' record that came out. He's got a pa- that's right. Yeah, he's got a Patreon um, program that's happening, which we'll talk about uh, down the road uh, when we have a discussion about uh, crowdfunding and that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. Kickstarter, pledge music, all that stuff. Patreon is a, a monthly subscription, and uh, and for what you're giving each month, you're getting certain things back on a subscribed monthly basis. And what he's doing is he's giving up a certain amount of songs every month be it demos, live tracks, new tracks, whatever. And so he's slowly been putting out a couple songs from a brand new record that he's been working on. And again, I'm falling in love with the work he's he's making right now. So more on him later. But the last one I want to bring up is uh, an artist called Lucius. Uh, it's coming through Red Eye Distribution. Um, it's like a pop, indie pop band, beautiful vocals. Um, the band previously has collaborated with, uh, Lucas Nelson and Dawes and Jeff Tweedy and this, Oh, I know who you're you talking about. Yes, 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 okay. yes, yes, of course. The new record, uh, features, uh, collaborations with Nels Klein and Roger Waters and the, the track with Nels Klein, uh, it's called million dollar secret. Um, uh-huh. just, just gorgeous. Uh, the, oh, really? the song I think had been used previously maybe about a year ago in a tv show or a movie but this record that just came out it's a collection of all newly recorded acoustic versions of new songs as well as some familiar songs of theirs including million dollar secret you can ask I listened to the original version, but I I really just stand right next to this this new acoustic one because you know me I've always had a soft spot for acoustic, but this is just a beautifully uh, sounding record and with the name attachment of Nels Klein, you know the guitar work's going to be halfway decent. Of course. Um, and that's kind of what what I'm listening to lately. Righteous. Yeah, and uh, by the way, all these mm-hmm. mentions of songs and artists on this show. You'll find songs in our Jukebox Graduate playlist on Spotify, which we'll, oh, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll be posting a link to that on the jukeboxgraduate.com's website. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yes. when, on occasion I'll listen to it and I have a hard time even figuring out how that, like I have to work really hard. And sometimes <laughs> I'll send you a text like, I, yeah. I don't think I get this one. And then you'll, say, and then, and you'll explain it. I go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We connect the dots. You do a brilliant job of it. And it's, Thank it's, you. it's it, <laughs> I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, like, I just, I have no idea. It just proves I have no idea what I'm talking about. Really. 
you know what? And I compile this thing. I put it all together. I know what I'm putting in there. But 50% of the time, you're referencing things that I'm not familiar with, but I've got to include something in there. So I've got to find something. And the discoveries I'm making based on your references, I think it's wonderful. And I, I hope that's what our listeners kind of get out of this too, because you know they may be familiar with some of the, the brand A names that we talk mm-hmm. about, but just the slight little indie references or, you know, or from another era, you know, when those yeah. things come up, um, they surprise me sometimes. And I'll go back and listen to some of these playlists on my own on Shuffle, and it's just great to just dive in and just think, wow, we did talk about that. Oh, and that's... Oh, my God. So, so are, are we going to have ink, we're going to have an Ink Spots and a Four Freshman song on our playlist? And Mills Brothers. I, I'll try not to place the Mills Brothers directly next to the Ink Spots. That's going to be cool. <laughs> That is going to be cool. It's going to be all over the place. Arthur Crudup and some Elmore James, and this is going to be very exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they've got the Wheel of Fortune theme on there, but um, (laughs) (laughs) do they have one? I guess they must have one. I don't know. Uh, I can't think of it, but yeah, of course they do. And Merv Griffin (laughs) probably wrote it himself. Right. And Merv Griffin makes the playlist. (laughs) He wrote the (laughs) Jeff. That's right. Be careful what you wish for. It's my Merv Griffin impersonation. Ooh. Good one. Yeah. All right, let's get out of here, Dave. This episode of The Jukebox Graduate is, as always, brought to you by Satellite Amplifiers. Go to SatelliteAmps.com for all of yesterday's technology today. They have new Scamp guitar amplifiers. They have new guitars. They have new pedals. They even have a new storefront down there in San Diego. Check it out. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to thank... Tom Zimney for sharing some of his time with us and enlightening us about the Searcher documentary on HBO coming up April 14th and on demand. Uh, Also, thanks to Amped Distribution. The Jukebox Graduate is available on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. Look for us, find us on your favorite platform, and don't forget to rate us, review us, Subscribe to us wherever you listen and never miss an episode. And again, uh, check out our companion Spotify playlist for every episode on thejukeboxgraduate.com's website. We'll have all the links there, including links to where you can catch Gene on the road and anything else Dave may be doing in the meantime. Do you have a quote for us, Dave? I do. And silver wings carried her over the sea from the west coast of Ireland to West Tennessee to be with her sweetheart She left everything, from Galway to Graceland, to be with the king. I'm Dave Rayburn. I'll be there today with a big bouquet of cactus. I got this rig that runs on memories, and I promise, cross my heart, they'll never catch us. But if they do, just tell them it was me. I'm Eugene Edwards, and this has been the Jukebox Graduate.